I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 28, 2011. We are in the thick of Advent now. Notice I didn't say Christmas. Did you all have a great Thanksgiving? Those of you in the United States. I did. I did. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and there's like no reason for it. I mean, it's not like the Bible's that hard to get, and uh, the problem is is that, well, there's a lot of guys out there that are just making stuff up and uh, and while well, blaming it on God. And, and the way they get away with it is by just ripping passages out of context and weaving together their own narrative based upon their own inner theology, not the theology that's in the Scripture. It's the theology in their own mind. And as a result of it, while we consider that to be a dangerous thing in the church, uh, with the idea of this, um, the Bible warns us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, so it's not generally a good idea to put a little bit of leaven in your sermons. Yeah, <laughs> that would be bad. And so we point out what the lemon, uh, what the lemon, what the leaven is, what it, well, what it sounds like, and uh, how to spot it, so that uh, you can uh, attend church and enjoy sermons that are leaven-free, if you would. Uh, you know, that focus on Christ and crucified for our sins, sound biblical doctrine, uh, God's word rightly handled, rightly divided. You know, things of that nature. So. Um, it's a well. It's not exactly a politically correct thing that we do here, but uh, we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. So, with that, <clears throat> well, let's let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thanksgiving's over. We're now in the uh, the Advent season. Uh, uh, those of you who attend a church that uh, follows the uh, the lectionary, the uh, the 
traditional church calendar, we are now in a brand new church year. It's brand spanking new. So happy new year to uh, all of you out there thinking, yeah, yeah, it's happy. It's new year. It's a new church year. The Advent begins things. And uh, and so the whole the, the church year begins with, well, this time of the year uh, in anticipation of the incarnation of Christ. You know, it's all right. So here's the deal. Here at the Roseboro Family Compound, uh, we we do have our Christmas tree up already, and yeah, there are stockings in front of our um, our um, the fireplace. Uh, but uh, you know, my personal thing here is that uh, we recognize Advent. You know, we want to lead into Christmas. Christmas begins on Christmas Day and goes for twelve days. You know, after that, it's so the Christmas isn't the the, the day itself isn't the the finish line, if you would. So. You know, it's, it's just personally, that's the way I've come to enjoy the this particular time of the year. So instead of uh, just going right to Christmas, instead what we, you know, it, especially the churches that I've been attending for the last, you know, couple of decades, um, the, the readings are usually readings uh, from the gospel text in anticipation of Christ's incarnation, and then the incarnation texts begin with Christmas. So you, you understand what I'm saying here? So, um, by the way, a little kind of a side note, kind of a bunny trail, if you would, right here at the uh, opening of Fighting for the Faith today. Um, do you attend a church where uh, your pastor uses a historic lectionary? And what I mean by, you know, you can think of the lectionary like this, that uh, there are assigned readings. And there's a one-year track, there's a three-year track, there's a couple of different tracks that a pastor could be on. But i got to tell you, the, the lectionary is a fantastic way of keeping the congregation from being terrorized by the feelings and innovations and imagination of a pastor. Okay, It works with this concept in mind, um, that, uh, that the, the job of a pastor is baptizing and teaching the entire, the whole council of the Word of God. And so on an annual basis, on a yearly basis, the pastor has his texts, the, the, uh, the passages of Scripture that he's going to be preaching from, assigned to him already, predetermined ahead of time. And, and in the course of 12 months, beginning uh, with Advent and ending at the end of the church year, uh, the last part of November, uh, you're going to get through all of the major big block doctrines, major big block themes uh, in the scriptures. You're going to go through the entire council of the Word of God in the course of the lecture. That's the goal. And uh, and so um, it's a wonderful thing to keep your pastor busy so that he's not busy letting his imagination run wild. In fact, um, if you, you know if your pastor is one who, well, it lets his imaginations and feelings get the better of him and uh, and is prone to terrorizing the congregation with uh the the creative imaginative uh, sermon series that he's been coming up with lately um one way to knock that off is basically to uh you know get the uh, the folks in the congregation together to vote in the lectionary and assign it to him and say yeah we're done with um, the whole sermon series things that, that you've been up to. You know, I, we don't want to come to church next week and have you tell us that we're going to have to sit through four weeks of you explaining to us uh, why we should do a seven-day sex challenge and you calling it a experiment or things like that. And yeah, we don't need a sermon series on good parenting and stuff like that. We need you to get busy with preaching the Word and the entire council of the Word of God. So just, you know, hand them a piece of paper and, you know, and say, you know, here, here here's the lectionary. Uh, these will be your texts that are assigned for you for the next three years. And um, in fact, and here's the deal. Um, 
What we expect you to do is to preach from these texts. We expect you to rightly handle God's word. You don't get to cherry pick verses out of context and weave together your own theology. You've actually got to teach from those texts right there. And uh, and on top of it, once you get done with that three-year series, we expect you to, well, to, to go through it again. And the second time through, we expect you to be better at it. We expect you to actually have some maturity and depth of understanding of God's word. And so you tell you what, as, as a congregation, we're not only going to give you this lectionary and expect you to teach from it, well, we'll buy you a good commentary series, you know, a series of commentaries to help you out and might even send you back to seminary or uh, some correspondence course to help you brush up on the biblical languages so that you can do a better job of being a good exegete. You know, things like that. So, uh, and, and here's the deal. You know, you, you got a pastor who follows the lectionary. You don't have to worry about being terrorized by weird ideas and the burblings of, of uh, up from his own heart, liver shivers, uh, you know, burning in the bosoms or anything of that nature. Nope, nope, nope. Because I don't know if you've noticed this. If you've been a, a, a listener to Fighting for the Faith for any amount of time, then one of the things that you've probably noticed is that based upon the fact that a lot of these seeker-driven churches uh, constantly cherry-pick a couple of verses out of context and then weave together entire hour-long sermons based upon just a couple of verses out of context— that it's literally physically impossible for a seeker-driven church pastor to preach the entire counsel of the Word of God, either in a year or three years or probably in the course of his entire lifetime. And so, um, yeah, he's off topic and off mission, and, and you know, he, he needs to be reined in. And, you know, listen, when it comes to um, to being a pastor, I hate to say it, but creativity and innovation – very, 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 very low, 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 low on the list. Instead, near the top of the list, fidelity to the text, preaching and rightly handling God's word. That's the premium, primo, important stuff. Um, yeah, I'll take a guy with no creativity who rightly handles God's word and faithfully teaches the text Sunday after Sunday over an innovative guy any day of you know of the week. Anyway, so just you know, just saying you know. So if you're looking for a practical way to kind of um, put your pastor back in the box, yeah, at the voters' assembly, vote in uh, you know that he be required to teach from a lectionary. It'll clear things right up. He'll probably end up leaving, but yeah, but then you can call another pastor, one who will actually do his job. So, <clears throat> did I say that out loud? Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I, you know, being out of pocket for the uh, the holiday, uh, for the Thanksgiving holiday, there was um, well, a weird news story that I'll have to talk about here. Um, it, <laughs> Was your Thanksgiving turkey um, uh, slaughtered according to the law, uh, Sharia law? <laughs> you know, I want to take a look at this story. Um, before we get to that, though, I've got a Joel Osteen update. Uh, Joel Osteen apparently is now buddy buddy with uh, TD Jakes. And uh, does anyone wonder why I think that uh, Joel Osteen isn't a Christian pastor? He doesn't teach the biblical gospel. Um, he doesn't proclaim Christ and him crucified for. Since Joel Osteen, you know, he's got the largest megachurch in the United States, and as a result of it, there's a lot of guys who want to be buddy buddy with him. But uh, I'm not one of them. And apparently, but apparently, T.D. Jakes of the Elephant in the Room Two conference, um, he, well, he he recently preached at Lakewood and and one of the local news affiliates down there in Houston, Texas. Um, 
um, made sure to cover the story. So we've got uh, we've got that. I've got a, uh, a uh, an update from Patricia King, um, basically prophetically uttering things regarding whether or not there's going to be a food shortage. Um, yeah. So is there going to be a food shortage or not? Well, Patricia King is going to you know spill the beans there. And of course, everybody knows that you know she's already been to the wine cellar of heaven, so she should know whether or not there's going to be a food shortage. In, in anywhere in the world, and so she'll be speaking about that. I've got the news story about the turkeys being slaughtered Sharia style, and uh, then to round out the hour, I've got a blog post from Stephen Furtick um, entitled "When Rivalry Looks Ridiculous." When rivalry looks r- r- ridiculous, and then in hour number two, I'm going to be playing two good Advent sermons, Advent one sermons, if you would. Uh, based on the uh, the gospel text regarding Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that's how we start off the Advent season in anticipation of Christ coming. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So make yourself comfortable. Um, you know, fuzzy bunny slippers if uh, that if the weather permits in your neck of the woods uh, here in uh, Central Indiana. Well, things are getting cold. I think they're saying that we're going to get um, we're going to actually get snow sometime this week so i'm kind of looking forward to that um but uh anyway so they do just so you know fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience to fighting for the faith uh with this caveat that uh, you gotta you gotta wear them only 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 uh if the weather permits of course if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage we don't have a problem with that keep in mind drunkenness is a sin and you don't want to be enslaved to that good gift that god has given us uh, that's just silly. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here we go. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea, what makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. All right, yeah, <clears throat> that that's uh, the music to announce our Joel Osteen update. Uh, apparently, Joel Osteen had T.D. Jakes uh, attending uh, Lakewood and actually preaching there in uh, Houston, Texas. And the Eyewitness News team, uh, ABC Channel 13 there in Houston, Texas, covered the story. Now, keep in mind, T.D. Jakes, um, uh, well, there's one person out there, that's James McDonald, believes that he's changed his view regarding the Godhead, regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. But, well, only James McDonald knows that, uh, Up, uh, really up to this point in the entire ministry of T.D. Jakes. Um, it's been pretty clear that T.D. Jakes has affirmed the uh, the heresy known as modalism, Otherwise, uh, you know, also called the Sabalian heresy, the, that, that God, there is one God who uh, exists in three modes or three manifestations, but um, not three persons. There's only one person in the uh, Godhead, according to, uh, well, T.D. Jakes's historical view regarding the Trinity. But it, don't, don't worry, um, it, Joel Osteen would never, I mean, never in a million years let something like, you know, the... Sabalian modalistic heresy keep him from being a good brother to uh, T.D. Jakes. Um, Here, it's best if we let the Eyewitness News team explain. 
Two of the world's best-known TV ministers recently got together in Houston for an event that was literally the first of its kind at Lakewood Church. Pastor Joel Osteen asked Bishop T.D. Jakes of Dallas to preach there. So why is that such a big deal, and how did it happen? Well, I talked to both Meg. Yeah, well, it's kind of a big deal, I mean, because, you know, Joel Osteen recently affirmed Oprah from the stage there. Didn't seem to have a problem with her theology either. Uh, you know, what is it about um, wolves? They seem to run in packs, apparently. You know, something I've noticed. The ministers about how they got together in this exclusive interview. Somebody take my picture. I'm at Lakewood. A funny thing happened on the way to this service. Bishop T.D. Jakes called Pastor Joel Osteen, hoping to get Lakewood to host a men's conference. A quick tour turned into all day. We talked about, uh, you know, how... And, and they call out the news crews for this. Private meeting between T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen, and now it, the media is there to cover the private meeting. Hmm, Really? I was interested in how he got started and how he prepares messages and things like that. But then, other than that, we had fun. They'd known each other for years, but not well. I have always uh, loved him from afar and prayed for him uh, as he rose to the office of assuming his father's mantle. I watched at a distance and prayed for him and imagined that it was my son. Yeah, you know, by the way, just a reminder, uh, Joel Osteen never really actually attended seminary. Um... I think his seminary comprised of him uh, purchasing a, a series of self-help motivational CDs from Anthony Robbins's um, uh, <clears throat> self-help um, company. I was praying for him like he's a little kid, you know. <laughs> but you know, you all aren't that different in age. He's a few years older than you, but yet you seem to feel as though he's almost like a father figure instead of an older brother. Now, c correct me if I'm wrong here, okay? There's something just really weird about this story that's, that's like totally grating on me. And that is this. Okay. Um, for normally these types of news stories, okay, the meeting of two important leaders uh, is usually reserved for like when the president of the United States meets with another head of state from, you know, a foreign nation. You know, for, so, you know, it, you know, the, the news would cover the story if, Barack Obama and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu met together privately, and and there would be a you know a, a brief time with the media to discuss what they discussed, you know, in their private meeting. I mean, the template for this news story is that this is the meeting of two heads of state. This is the meeting of two mega, well, not mega, um, two giga church pastors, right? Um. And this, I mean, weird, just f absolutely bizarre, weird. You know, it's funny because I always thought that, and maybe just because of the presence he carries. And, uh, you know, again, I think he was preaching when he was 10 years old out in the woods. And so you just see him like that. But, you know, I realize he's not that much older than me. When I got with him one-on-one, -on -one, it was more like brothers. Did you do something that made... Yeah, brother was a Sabalian modalist. Weird. Uh, but then again, Joel Osteen never really having been to seminary, um, I think he downloaded his Anthony Robbins' uh, lectures from uh, the internet, though, you know, that, you know, because that, that helped him, you know, decide what it is he would preaches there at uh, <clears throat> his church. Ain't somebody love you, but you don't know what it was. And like brothers, they have a lot in common. Both pastor megachurches, both preach to millions more on TV. 
both uh, preach the word faith heresy. TV. And bo- both mishandle God's word. Both are wolves, not shepherds. Both have made millions outside of the pulpit from best-selling books and even movies. Their new bond led Osteen to invite Jakes to preach. Having a, a guest minister here in your pulpit, that's a fa- so don't worry. I mean, I, I do you think that Jill Osteen actually asked T.D. Jakes privately, hey, uh, 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 Bishop, do, do you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? I, you know, I, I'm thinking about having you, you know, giving you the pulpit so that you can preach to my congregation. But I got to make sure that you're not a heretic. Do you think that Joel Osteen went through all that? Really unusual thing for you, isn't it? It really is, because it's usually handled by the Lakewood staff. But uh, we've known Bishop Jakes from afar and just... Uh, Thought it would be a great thing for him to come down and share with our people. If I was selling them chicken dinners like I used to a long time ago, I could make a killing in here. I think that this is a new model because uh, whether people want to admit it or not, there's often a lot of jealousy in ministry amongst clergy. And I think it's a wonderful indication when a ministry like uh, Lakewood and Pastor Olstein can come together with Father House and T.D. Jakes without regard of race or theology or anything. Yeah, <laughs> without regard of theology. This apparently that that's the key thing there. Oh man! So you know, hey, we're gonna have TD Jakes come and teach at our because this is the new thing that uh, we're gonna allow other pe- you know pastors to have our pulpit regardless of their theology. You know, like the denial of the doctrine of the Trinity. Good night. And just worship God as His sons. Yeah, we're gonna just worship. We're gonna worship God without any theological considerations whatsoever. Do we even worship the same God as T.D. Jakes? Well, these two titans of televangelism have one more thing in common. They're often criticized for being too wealthy and for preaching the gospel of prosperity. Yeah, that's right, because they both do. How they respond to that charge and more on their unique relationship coming up tonight on Eyewitness News at 10. Uh, Let's see what the uh, 10 o'clock news uh, team said down there. Take two of the biggest televangelists in the nation, both of them from Texas, put them together. And what do you get? A religious relationship that is the first of its kind for both Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes. Eyewitness News anchor Melanie Lawson talked about why and how they're teaming up. Tonight's Closer Look. It's church service on steroids. At Lakewood, Joel and Victoria Osteen preached to nearly 44,000 people a week here in Houston. Millions more watch on TV. So that you may have the strength to go in. In Dallas, Bishop T.D. Jakes leads his own megachurch, the Potter's House, with 30,000 members and an international TV ministry. What do two televangelists talk about when they get together? Well, you know what? We just had fun. But he's just as down to earth and just as real. And it's not, uh, you know, he is in the pulpit is what he is behind the, you know, behind the scenes. It's stressful when you can't find the right chapter, especially when you're a preacher. Normal, fun, brilliant. I got to ask you, he said you were fun. Did you find him fun, too? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely fun. Absolutely fun. And and very authentic and very down to earth and very much what I expected him to be like. They've known each other for years, but it was a chance conversation that brought these preaching powerhouses together. Jake's thought Lakewood would be a good place to host his annual men's conference, so he came to take a look. He loved seeing the auditorium. We spent about an hour here just walking around. I had him play with the lights on the ceiling. 
evening. These Texas titans of televangelism have a lot in common. Both are well-known, both are wealthy. Osteen has written... Both are heretics. Three best-selling books. Both teach the prosperity heresy. Jakes has written more than 30, along with producing music, plays, and movies. One of the things I asked him about is what you both get criticized for, and that's being, you know, ministers of prosperity. Did you ever talk about that and, and some of the slings and arrows that are directed at you? We did, and it's funny, some of the things he said stuck with me, and I said, what would you uh, do different, just because he's been doing it longer? He said, I would realize who I should ignore quicker. I said, what God has for you! Yeah, ignore like, you know... Bible critics, people who point out that the prosperity gospel is a heresy and is not a proper handling of God's word, that it's a false gospel that sends people to hell, but makes the uh, guys at the top of the Ponzi scheme like the televangelists really, really rich. It's for you. Meaning that you're going to get criticized for something. You might as well get criticized for what you believe. And I believe that God wants us to be blessed. If you can do it. You can just do it. Let the haters make their haterade all they want to. Let the haters make their haterade. Yeah, I guess I'm uh, a pirate Christian radio fighting for the faith, specializing in in uh, in sweet flavored haterade. Whatever. I, I don't think that God minds us having things. Uh, he minds things having us. I need you to know that I love you so much. Based on the novel by best-selling author T.D. Jakes. What I tried to do was to make sure that um, I could explore all of the creative energies that I have. I'm a movie producer. I've written books and sold millions of, of copies of books. Uh, I don't have to depend on the church for my salary and for my income. And that's been a blessing to me. Bishop Jakes, we respect you and we honor you and just to, we admire you and just are so happy to have you here. On, on that, that's right. It's the meeting of the Wolf Pack. Days spent together led to a first-of-its-kind invitation by Osteen to have someone other than a Lakewood minister take over his pulpit. Oh, we've been doing this 11 years since my dad died, and I thought, you know, it's just time to have a few of our friends come in and, you know, when you can get a Bishop Jakes and people like him, although he's one of a kind, it's just a, it's just a, such a different flavor and just, a, you know, just a refreshing thing. I can count on my hands the times I've been away from my church on a Sunday morning. Somebody take my picture, I'm at Lakewood. <laughs> Many ministers this well-known might not want to share a pulpit, but each of these men credits the other with forging a bond. He's very easy to talk to, very easy to be around, very, very gracious, very non-pretentious, and, and almost comes from a different place from where most preachers come from. Yeah, because he doesn't know theology at all, and he thinks that Mormons are Christians. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, he's not like any other pastor out there because, well, he, he ain't really trained to be a pastor. Non-competitive, non-judgmental, those are things that you seldom see in the ministry. Our paths cross here and there, but now, uh, you know, it just felt like it's time, and he felt it too, just to get together and just uh, see what we can do more together than we can apart. So. And so do I hear that maybe there may be some collaborations in the future? We'd love to do something together. They've already set another date. Osteen will speak at Jake's conference later this year. And for the men nicknamed the Smiling Preacher and the Black Billy Graham, there's a new appreciation for someone else who understands. Because we both pastor very large churches, have daunting tasks, are visible, uh, dealing with high-stress lives. And look Isn't it interesting that, um, you know, 
heresy apparently is compatible with other heresy. Isn't that strange? You know, this, this Sabalian modalistic heresy is compatible with Joel Osteen's particular unique brand of heresy. The two are completely compatible. Weird. It ain't none of, none of those men are com, you know, and what they teach are compatible with biblical Christianity, but they're compatible with each other. They're birds of a feather, you know. And to thank God for help, and we we really share war stories sometimes of things we've learned about life and things that we are learning. Uh, that fellowship for anybody is very very important. Melanie Lawson, 13 Eyewitness News. So there you go. There's the news coverage of the meeting of the two heads of state. You know, the, the two giga church pastors, televangelists, doing the unheard of, the never before seen, the sharing of their pulpits. And what do the two have in common? Well, they both teach the prosperity heresy. And, well, Joel Osteen, I mean, obviously doesn't have enough theological acumen to understand that the Jesus that Mormons believe in ain't the biblical Jesus. And so, you know, he wouldn't be able to tell that the Jesus that T.D. Jakes believes in, the modalistic Jesus, that he's not the biblical Jesus either. Apparently, it doesn't matter what you believe in. As long as you name it Jesus, it's okay with Joel Osteen. Yeah, yeah, you just can't make this stuff up. But uh, the proof there is that, well, wolves travel in packs and affirm each other. And if you critique them, if you critique their beliefs, their false doctrine, and you show that from the Bible that what they're teaching isn't true, well, then you're just guilty of making haterade. Uh huh. That's not really what we call a biblical argument. All right, we're up on our um, first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing The Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, one of the sure signs that your pastor is a wolf is when he doesn't know how to spot other wolves and instead infirms them and gives his pulpit over to them. Yeah, wolves travel in packs. Just keep that in mind. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Just so you all know, we are frantically working on getting our ebook finished so that we have a Christmas gift to give to all of our uh, all of our crew members. So uh, there is an ebook that we're going to be releasing uh, to all of our crew members. If you are not a crew member already, then you know, please support us. And uh, you know, I'll be announcing that one shortly. We're almost there. Almost there. Almost there. Not quite there yet. Okay. Looking at my time today, we are probably not going to be able to get to the Patricia King update until tomorrow. And uh, so uh, with that, we're going to have to uh, switch gears and cover a news story that happened over the holiday that just caught my eye. But um, from World Net Daily, the um, headline reads, Has your Thanksgiving turkey been sacrificed to idols? Yeah, this uh, this was written by Drew Zahn of uh, World Net Daily, and it kind of raises an interesting question. What, what are you supposed to do if your food has been sacrificed to an idol? And in this particular case, the idol's name is Allah. Um, let me read the relevant passage um, you know, that comes into play here. And I've got to admit, okay, listen, okay. When I grew up um, from junior high through high school, I attended a... I attended Christian schools. I attended a Christian a junior high. I attended a Christian high school. I eventually went to a Christian uh, university um, where I got my degree in uh, theology, religious studies, biblical languages. And um, and got to tell you, this is a passage that I never in my life, not even for a second, ever thought would come into play, at least with any of the food that I ate, Unless, of course, I traveled to the mission field, which I never really planned on doing. But anyway, the passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Um, I'm going to begin at verse 4, and it reads, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, are you ready? We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, all in you know quotation marks, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Okay? However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through a former association with idols, Eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is therefore defiled. Now, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that is right uh, uh, that 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 this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you having knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food that is offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the, uh, and the, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So there you go. There's the biblical prohibition, and it kind of works along this line. Um, listen. Allah doesn't exist. Sorry, uh, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me if there's how many billions of Muslims running around on planet Earth. Um, the just that the the sheer numbers of, of Muslims running around the planet doesn't mean that the God that they believe in actually truly exists, and that He's the one responsible for making the heavens and the earth. In fact, Allah does not exist. Period. How do I know this? Plain and simple. Jesus Christ is more than a prophet. He's God in human flesh. That's who he claimed to be. And he proved it by raising himself from the dead. Therefore, uh, Jesus is God, and the biblical text that he put a stamp of approval on revealed to us who God is, uh, what is his nature, and you know things of that. And what we find is the biblical text tell us a different story about who God is and what he's done compared to the biblical text. Therefore, um, the Johnny Come Lately, uh, known as Islam, and their text, uh, the Quran, is to be rejected. Um, plain and simple. It doesn't teach us the truth about God. Allah is an idol. So now we've got this story coming to us from WorldNet Daily, and it reads, Now as you sit down with your family on Thanksgiving, now by the way, Thanksgiving's gone, so this, I mean, but the thing is, is that a lot of folks eat uh, turkey for Christmas too, so this is still, still a hot topic. So as you sit down with your family on Thanksgiving and consider offering a prayer of gratitude, be aware that the turkey at the center of the table may have already been blessed in the name of Allah. <laughs> Customer service representatives from Butterball, one of America's most popular turkey brands, confirmed to WorldNet Daily that the company's whole turkeys are, without being labeled as such, slaughtered according to Islamic halal standards. Halal slaughter involves cutting the trachea and the esophagus and the jugular vein and letting the blood drain out while saying, uh, Bismillah Aula Akbar, in the name of Allah the Greatest, explains Pamela Geller, author of Stop the Islamization of America, a Practical Guide to the Resistance. 
Many people refuse to eat on religious grounds. Many Christians, Hindus, and Sikhs and Jews find it offensive to eat meat slaughtered according to Islamic ritual. She continues on her blog, um, I do not want to eat halal, not a bite, and yet this is being shoved down the throats of Americans without their knowledge. Multiple phone representatives at Butterball confirmed. Confirmed. So this is a confirmed story uh, that... The turkeys are slaughtered according to halal standards, and one named Tracy, and she declined to give her last name, further confirmed the words of the Islamic dedication are spoken over the birds. None, however, could explain exactly how the slaughters are performed. Quote, I don't actually work in the processing plant, Tracy explained. Uh, as World Net Data reported earlier this year, however, Butterball isn't the only company that may be serving halal meats to unaware customers. Pastor Mark Blitz of El Shaddai Ministries in Bonnie Lake, Washington, has been sounding the alarm for Christians to be aware of what he calls backdoor Sharia, now uh, nibbling its way across the fruited plain. Notice the <clears throat> food humor. Anyway, Muslims join many Jews and some Christians in avoiding the consumption of certain animals, such as pigs and birds of prey, but those of the Islamic faith also have their meat blessed in the name of their God, Allah. From the Christian standpoint, Allah would be an idol, Blitz told WorldNet Daily. In a sermon that he posted online, Blitz explained, you could be eating beef, chicken, etc. offered up to Allah and not even know it. I can just imagine at a Passover Seder, the caterer, unbeknownst to anyone, is serving halal meat. It could be on your pizza without you knowing it. Um, or at your favorite restaurant. Yeah, by the way, this is a strong argument in favor of eating only pepperoni pizzas. Um, people don't realize they could be eating meat sacrificed to idols. So um, there you go. That's the story. And uh, what do you do in this situation? Well, keep in mind, Allah does not exist. But uh, here's the deal. Um, um, I'm going to basically publicly state this, and you know, and you can do what you like, because you know, this is one of those matters of conscience. I've had a discussion with Mrs. Roseborough, and... Uh, my wife and I have decided that we will not be purchasing Butterball turkeys anytime in the future unless we have the option of buying the non-Sharia law version of, um, of uh, Butterball turkey. I mean, if they want to have a certain portion of their turkeys sacrificed to... Uh, according to halal standards, um, that's that they can go ahead and do that. But they need to specially label those turkeys as Sharia approved. I would prefer to have no Sharia law on my Thanksgiving turkeys or on my Christmas turkeys or any turkey that I eat. So, um, yeah, until they start uh, labeling and giving me the option to have Sharia free turkey, I will not be purchasing um, Butterball turkeys. That's just what we've decided to do because uh, I understand that Allah doesn't exist and I truly have the freedom to uh, to eat a butterball turkey, even one that uh, has been sacrificed uh, according to the standards of halal. But um, there's a principle at stake here, and that is is that, um, yeah, um, I, I want my turkey to be Sharia-free because uh, I consider it to be as Islam to be a major threat to the entire planet that sends people to hell and makes the well life here on earth hell on earth. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I will only be eating Sharia-free turkeys in the future, just, just to let you know. But that's just my personal choice. You don't have to join me in that 
um, in that at all. You're that you have the freedom to uh, to eat Sharia turkey if you choose to do so, or not to eat Sharia turkey. Again, it you know my faith won't be destroyed either way. But I just wanted to let you all know that. Moving along. Yeah, that means we're doing a Stephen Furtick update. And I picked this uh, blog post of his because of the Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes thing. But <clears throat> here, let's listen in for a second. I'm going to do this karaoke style. I will be changing the lyrics. You're so vain I bet you think the Bible's about you You're so vain I bet you think the Bible's about you Don't you, don't you Yeah, that's right, my favorite Stephen Furtick update music Okay, so uh, from the Stephen Furtick blog I mean, You can find this at his blog site StephenFurtick.com. The name of the blog post is entitled "When Rivalry Looks Ridiculous." When rivalry looks ridiculous, and um, you know what's interesting is that this blog post puts Stephen Furtick in the theological camp, well, as the same one as Joel Osteen and uh, T.D. Jakes. <clears throat> I'll explain here as as we read, but I want to uh, let the story unfold the way Stephen Furtick told the story on his blog. Here's what it, he said. He said, The South Carolina Gamecocks defeated the Clemson Tigers convincingly on Saturday, November 26, 2011. That makes three years in a row that the Tigers have fallen to the Gamecocks. In the Furtick family, we pull for Clemson, which means that, <clears throat> well, things didn't go so well for him on Saturday. My mom graduated from Clemson, so it's uh, it's all I've ever known. My boys did their best to cheer the Tigers to victory Saturday night. We were all pretty disappointed at the outcome. Why am I telling you this? Well, for sympathy, a, a little bit, um, but mainly to share an anecdote with you. Now, uh, okay, I'm going to point something out here. <clears throat> Um, this anecdote doesn't have its origin in Scripture. This is just an anecdote that has as its origin the mind of Stephen Furtick. Okay, so he's going to be giving us a theological conclusion to a story that begins with an anecdote. That apparently there's some theological truth we need to be hanging on to here. <clears throat> so anyway, he says, "Stay with me." See, where I grew up in the low country of South Carolina, there was uh, almost nothing bigger than the Clemson-South Carolina in-state rivalry game. Not Christmas, not your kids' graduation, not a personal appointment with Jesus for the rapture. He says I'm only exaggerating slightly. And throughout my childhood, I just assumed that the football game that was the center of my universe must be the center of everyone else's too. If I had met another little boy from China, I would have asked him whether he was a Clemson fan or a Carolina fan. Those two categories seemed as universal to me as dead or alive. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we're going to draw a theological conclusion from his, well, misunderstanding as a child. He says, now it probably wasn't until my first year of college that I fully realized how little most of the world cared 
about Clemson or Carolina. Football fans in other parts of the country were consumed with their own rivalries. Yeah, see, see, I grew up in Southern California, and the big rivalry college-wise was UCLA versus USC. And, uh, you know, there were some interesting shenanigans that would, you know, take place every year with that particular rivalry. But anyway, football fans in other parts of the country were consumed with their own rivalries. Worse yet, most of the world's population didn't care about American football at all. In fact, they didn't even consider it real football. They reserved that name, understandably, for another sport. It was a revelation for me. All my life, I've been obsessed with something that most people couldn't care less about. Hmm. You see where this is going? <clears throat> yeah, the, the, this is the reason why I'm saying that this blog post puts Stephen Furtick, well, somewhere in the general category vicinity of Joel Osteen. Anyway, we continue. As far as football goes, this is pretty harmless. Team loyalties give us bragging rights and something to talk about, at least in our own little corner of the world. But I think there's a deeper analogy here about some of the dumb stuff that divides so many churches, ministries, and believers in Jesus. I wonder how many rivalries we've set up within the Christian culture that makes us look completely aloof and disconnected to a watching world. We're busy drawing battle lines within our own bubble. Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Are you missional or attractional? Are you a cessationist or a continuationist? Are you seeker-sensitive or insert the opposite of seeker-sensitive? Are you blah, 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 or yada, yada, yada? Uh-huh. So apparently none of these theological distinctives really, well, these are about as useless as, well, you know, local football rivalries. These aren't real theological battles. These aren't really important. Can't we all just get along? <clears throat> Meanwhile, most hurting people in the world have no idea what we're talking about. A lot of the time, neither do we, if you press us. What's worse, they don't care. Well, yeah, see, the world doesn't care about theological dis debates. Okay. If the average non-Christian heard some of the debates that dominate many of our Christian conversations, they'd be sickly amused, completely confused, totally disgusted, or all of the above. Bad things happen when we become obsessed with things that most people couldn't care less about. Now, notice, again, I'm going to point this out to you. Stephen Furtick is not making a biblical argument here. He's basically making the claim that theological battle lines are about as useless and, uh, well, silly as local football rivalries. But he hasn't marshaled a single text to back up this point. Does God's Word agree with Stephen Furtick's view and position, which, by the way, sounds eerily similar to the view that T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen have, two men that, well, Stephen Furtick uh, makes clear over and over again publicly, two men whom he holds in the highest, highest esteem and regards as men of God. So, but again, this is not a biblical argument. This is an argument from his life, from his experience. This is a theology if, that burbled up from his mind. But is this what the scriptures teach? Yeah. Um, you know, let me, let me, let me just throw this into the mix here. If you have your Bible, you might want to look at uh, the epistle of Jude. 
Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. A lot of people don't realize this about Jude. Jude did not believe in Jesus while Jesus was alive. In fact, one of the biblical texts makes it clear, one of the gospel writers makes it clear that Jude, uh, not only was he skeptical about his half-brother Jesus, um, he thought he was crazy and wanted him locked up. What changed his mind? Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave. Okay, So the half-brother of Jesus writes in his epistle, Jude, starting in verse 3, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day." As just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. So Jude here is describing people who are who are disrupting the uh, biblical faith, who are teaching things contrary to the biblical faith. And here's what it says about them. They rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Rely on their dreams. Hmm, sounds similar to certain people that I know. Um, uh, That would be, well, you know, Stephen Furtick included in the mix. But there's other passages in Scripture that teach us things regarding what a Christian is to view regarding sound biblical doctrine. And this is found, if you want to take a look, you can go to Titus chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays out the qualifications uh, for overseers, for pastors. So uh, Paul, writing in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might uh, remain in order and appoint elders In every town, as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or of insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate. They are empty talkers, and they are deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who swerve away from the truth. Okay? So, um, those are two passages that I would bring to bear here that give us what our view should be regarding 
false doctrine and sound doctrine, okay? So the Calvinist-Arminian debate, which really hinges on uh, whether or not we are dead in trespasses and sins and have free will or not, which goes all the way back to the Pelagian controversy in the church, is not one that is a minor issue. It's a big issue. Missional, attractional, yeah, I don't even know what either of those are. Sensationist or continuous, yeah, that's important too because what's your authority? Is it God's word plus your dreams and visions? Or is it God's word alone? Okay. Um, yeah, so here's the deal. Um, you'll notice here, um, Stephen Furtick is basically saying theology and sound doctrine doesn't matter. We're all on the same team. But don't ask me about definitions. Don't ask me to define my theology. Don't look at the specifics of what I preach. We're all on the same team. And to, well, to critique me, to critique other guys, you know, like Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes, well, <laughs> That's just silly. That's the equivalent of a you know of a silly local regional crosstown football rivalry, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, let me continue and let me finish the uh, the blog post from Stephen Furtick. Bad things happen when we become obsessed with things that most people couldn't care less about. Yeah. See, the thing is, is that God cares about sound doctrine, Stephen, because I just read passages that show that God cares about sound doctrine because. Teachers in the church are called to teach the word properly, to rightly handle God's word, and to rebuke those who contradict it. God cares about God's word being rightly taught. Anyway, so let's see here. So bad things happen when we become obsessed with things that most people couldn't care less about and become distracted by passions that aren't the highest priority in the heart of God. Well, apparently this is a high priority because otherwise why would God have inspired the Apostle Paul and uh, the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, to write what they wrote. So he says, well, we look like idiots when we launch full-scale wars o- over battles that Jesus didn't die to fight. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Can you name some of those, Stephen? You're not quoting any passages of Scripture here. Most tragically, it keeps us from coming together and really putting the devil on the run in our generation. Uh-huh. So I know I, I just need to you know be like Joel Osteen in order to put the devil on the run. Of course, we've got to draw a line sometimes. Otherwise, uh, we fall for the all paths lead to God cliff, placing the terrorists on United Flight 175 on the same grounds of sincerity as St. Peter. And there's certainly a place for theological distinction, for crying out loud, I'm part of a Protestant church. Okay, yeah, yeah. But don't, but don't you think that too often... Our in-church rivalries with other believers and ministries make us look like people with really small worlds. Um, The truth is narrow. Jesus said that the way that leads to life is narrow, and the way that leads to destruction is a broad highway. Keep that in mind. So God help us when we can't respect one another's different positions enough to realize, hey, we're wearing the same jersey. But see, here's the deal, uh, Stephen. Um, are we really wearing the same jersey when you preach a different gospel? Are we really wearing the same jersey when you open up a biblical text like uh, the Road to Emmaus text? And rather than making it about Jesus, you make it about yourself? Are we really playing for the same team? Um, because here's the deal. The last time I checked, 
It's the devil who blurs and distorts God's word. It's the devil who takes the glory away from Christ. It's the devil who would take a text about Jesus and make it about himself. That's not the behavior of somebody who's on the same team. And usually it's the wolves who cry constantly, Oh, can't we all just get along? I say, sure. As soon as you repent of your false doctrine and your false teaching and you preach the the, the biblical gospel, uh, then I'll say that we're on the same team and we can get along. So, yeah, we'll get along as soon as you take your rebuke like a man and repent of your false doctrine and stop teaching falsehood and stop pointing people to yourself when you're supposed to be preaching the word and pointing them to Christ. When you do that, then I'll say that we're on the same team. Now, let me give you a, <clears throat> another example from a guy who, well, doesn't exactly have a skin in this game because he's already gone to glory. This would be... Uh, the founder of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, C.F.W. Walther, from his book entitled The Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel. This is from the fourth lecture uh, from that series uh, that was uh, delivered on October 3rd, 1884, long before I walked the earth, long before Stephen Furtick walked the earth. But here's what Walther says. He says, when a theologian is asked to yield and make concessions in order that peace may at last be established in the church, but refuses to do so even in a single point of doctrine, such an action looks to human reason like intolerable stubbornness, yes, like downright malice. That is the reason why such theologians are loved and praised by just a few men during their lifetime. Most men rather revile them as disturbers of the peace, yes, as destroyers of the kingdom of God. They are regarded as men worthy of contempt. But in the end, it becomes obvious that this very determined, relentless tenacity in clinging to the pure teaching of the divine word by no means tears down the church. On the contrary, it is just this which, in the midst of greatest dissension, builds up the church and ultimately brings about genuine peace. Therefore, woe to the church which has no men of this stripe, men who stand as watchmen on the walls of Zion, sound the alarm whenever a foe threatens to rush the walls, and rally to the banner of Jesus Christ for a holy war. Try and picture to yourselves what would have happened if Athanasius had made a slight concession in doctrine, in the doctrine of the deity of Christ. He could have made a compromise with the Arians and put his conscience at ease, for the Arians declared that they too believed Christ to be God, only not God from eternity. They said, there was a time when he, that's Jesus, did not exist, meaning he had become God. But they added, nevertheless, he is to be worshipped, for he is God. That's what the Arians said. Even at that remote time, had Athanasius yielded, the, the church would have been hurled from the one rock on which it is founded, which is none other than Jesus Christ. Again, Imagine what would have happened if Augustine had made a slight concession in the doctrine of man's free will, or rather of the utter incapacity of man for matters spiritual. He, too, could have made a compromise with the Pelagians and put his conscience at ease because the Pelagians declared, well, yes, indeed, without the aid of God's grace, no man can be saved. But... By the grace of God, they meant the divine gift which is imparted to every man. 
even at that time, had Augustine yielded, the church would have lost the core of the gospel. There would have been nothing left of it but the empty, hollow shell. Yes, the church would have retained nothing but the name of the gospel. For the doctrine of the gospel that man is made righteous in the sight of God and saved by nothing but the pure grace of God through the merits of Jesus Christ is, as everybody knows, the most important doctrine, the marrow and the substance of Christian teaching. Wherever this doctrine is not proclaimed, there is no Christ, there is no gospel, and there is no salvation. There men perish, and for such people it has been in vain that the Son of God has come into the world. So let us therefore bless all the faithful champions who have fought for every point of Christian doctrine, unconcerned about the favor of men and disregarding their threatenings, their personal humiliation and disgrace, though it often was great, has not been born in vain. Men cursed them, but they continued bearing their testimony until death, and now they wear the crown of glory and enjoy the blissful communion of Christ and of all the angels and the elect. Their labor and their fierce battling has not been in vain, for even now, after 1,500 years, or in the last named case, after several centuries, the church is reaping what they sowed. Let us then, my friends, likewise hold fast the treasure of the pure doctrine. Do not consider it strange if on that account you must bear reproach the same as they did. Let this be your slogan, fight unto death on behalf of the truth, and the Lord will fight for you. Yeah, I, it seems to me that CFW Walther and Stephen Furtick um, well, they're not cut from the same cloth. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to what is worthy of fighting for and what is not. Okay, we are up on our second break, and when we come back, we've got two really good uh, Advent One sermons for you to consider today as we continue our program. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to be listening to two good Advent One sermons. Four Sundays in Advent. And to kick it off, we'll be uh, reading from a gospel text that is normally associated with um, Palm Sunday. up the music here. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. To kick off the Advent season, the new church year, we will be uh, listening to two sermons. Uh, one from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. But before that, we'll be listening to a uh, sermon uh, from Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. So we're, you know, we're I said that out of order. <laughs> The first in the two sermons is entitled, He's Coming, Not Leaving, preached by Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. The second is from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights, Pastor William Swirla, preaching. The name of the sermon is entitled, Your King Comes to You. And it's based on Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. You'll notice both texts deal with Palm Sunday. Seems like a strange way to begin the Advent season, but this is a very smart way to begin Advent. Tell you what, hang on a second here, I'm going to kill the music. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the uh, the, the text from the Gospel of Mark, uh, the uh, the text from Matthew is, you know, is almost identical, but, uh, you know, let me read to you from the gospel text that comprises the first, uh, basically the basis for the first sermon uh, preached by Pastor Hodel. And here's what it reads. It reads, um, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem at Bethphage uh, the, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untied and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went and away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what uh, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road. The others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the text that forms the basis for our first sermon today from, you know, an Advent one sermon from uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. Here is Pastor Ron Hodel in his sermon entitled, He's Coming, Not Leaving. In the name of Jesus, amen. This morning, I need to talk to you about money. It's amazing how that sentence grabs people's attention, isn't it? (laughs) Whenever we talk about money, people's ears perk up, especially when that money isn't coming in like it used to. I can only imagine that it piques people's attention and rises to the level that it does because during economic downturns, when it comes right down to it, People's gods are being taken away from them. Gods of gold and silver and stone. Gods of financial security. Gods of stimulus spending. Gods of entitlements. Gods of pet projects. Gods that gave people their self-esteems and their purpose for living. Gods of past and present economic systems. Gods, our true God knew all along, would fail to provide as they promise. And coming again to another holiday season and having to celebrate another Christmas without one's gods granting one's every wish... And well, the thought becomes depressing. It doesn't have to be the God of wealth, though, does it? It can be anything that you're enamored with. Anything that, for some reason or another, has started disappearing from your life. Wealth, strength, power, control, a bright future opportunity, you name it. Gods that are being taken away. Gods that are disappearing. But today, we get a different message. Not that our gods are being taken away from us, but rather, as Zechariah the prophet proclaimed, our king is coming to us righteous and having salvation. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, Isaiah proclaimed. Our God is coming, not leaving. The one who is the king of the universe, the one who is the king of all creation, he is coming. And so even in the darkness of all this world's bad news, 
bad news announcing the disappearing of everybody else's gods, we are singing boldly this morning, singing, Savior of the nations, come. Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. Behold, the King of glory waits. The King of kings is drawing near. The Savior of the world is near. Life and salvation he doth bring. Therefore rejoice and gladly sing. To God the Father raise your joyful songs of praise. And we are singing. Singing whether the Dow Jones thrills the bear or the bull. Singing whether this year was a happy year or a sad one. Singing whether you're young or old. Singing no matter who is president or governor. Singing no matter what we feel about the future because our God who is greater than all of this, our God is coming to us with gifts of righteousness and salvation. Now, is our king coming to us because we are so great? Not at all. The reason why our king is coming is not because we aren't like all of those losers out there who have other gods, but rather because we are exactly like them. He is bringing righteousness because we don't have any. Couldn't even conjure it up if we had to. And any righteousness that we may have is nothing more than a polluted garment. He's bringing salvation because we need it. We're dead without it. Dead in our sins we are. Oh, our false gods might be different than our neighbor's false gods, but they're false gods nevertheless. Isaiah spoke those hard truths this morning. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The good that we do we pollute with self-righteous arrogance. Our being right all the time is contaminated with sanctimonious pride. We become offended because we've thought too highly of ourselves. Our houses and our churches are filled with little kings and queens in constant competition with each other. And so no wonder we get into turf wars about the most mundane of things. But today, the call goes out, Behold, your king is coming to you. Now, this could be bad news. This could be bad news to us throne snatchers who want to be kings and queens ourselves except for the next phrase, he is coming righteous and having salvation. That makes our king's coming good news. Our king is coming to serve us. And come he does, riding on a donkey. Come he does, to wear a crown of thorns. 
Come He does to carry a cross for us. Come He does to forgive us, to declare us righteous and to save us. When you meet one of the world's kings, not that I ever have, but when you meet a world's king, it's only right to bring him gifts, the best that money can buy. So how do you meet a king such as this one? Offer him gifts? Gold? Frankincense and myrrh? Sacrifice your firstborn? No, I tell you. Something even greater than that. How do you meet such a king as this one? The answer is, we repent. Repent of making ourselves our own little kings and queens and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Repent of the sins that we use to serve and please ourselves with and pray that our king would take those sins away. Repent of our love of all the gods that are disappearing left and right. The little empty gods who promise us the world and then dump us on our face, leaving us empty and dejected. Repent and rejoice that our true God and King is coming to us to take us as his own. That's why we're here today. For our King is coming to us, coming as our Savior, coming with his forgiveness. Behold, your King is coming to you righteous and having salvation. That wasn't just true at his coming at Bethlehem as a baby. It's true even today as well. For today he comes. He comes in the waters of holy baptism where he washes us clean of our sins. He comes in the words of the absolution to pronounce us righteous with a righteousness not our own. He comes under bread and wine to feed us with himself. The one who is the bread of life and to deliver to us what he promises to bring with him, righteousness and salvation. And so today on this first Sunday in Advent, together with the Palm Sunday crowd, we sing Hosanna. Hosanna and Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We cry out to him as they did. As he enters this place hidden, not on the back of a donkey, but in these humble means of word and water, bread and wine, rejoicing that our king is coming to us, coming to be our God, the one who comes to save us. But save us for what? Take a look at that second lesson from Corinthians, Paul's letter today. If you know anything about what was going on in that Corinthian congregation, you would have to say that Paul's words are extremely surprising. Corinth was a very troubled congregation. Sin ran rampant. It was good pastor Paul's nightmare congregation. 
And yet, in spite of all of the drama that congregation had, Paul talks about them as if they are spiritual giants in the faith. How can Paul honestly say this? How can Paul say that they are in every way enriched in all speech and knowledge, lacking in no spiritual gift? How can Paul say that about them when there is so much brokenness in that congregation? The reason Paul can talk this way about the Corinthians is not because of them, and certainly not because of the progress they were making in the faith, but rather because of the work of Jesus in them, his work of forgiveness, the work of his spirit. Paul was looking at them through the eyes of faith, confident that as broken and sinful as that congregation was, Jesus was at work in them. The Corinthians had a long way to go. Just like we do. Just like I do. But we can be confident that Jesus is working in us as well, working his forgiving and transforming work so that what Paul says about the Corinthians can be said about us as well. That in Jesus, in every way, we are enriched, not lacking in any spiritual gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our King doesn't come to us to forgive us and leave us, but called to be His people. Through his word and spirit, he shapes and molds us, changing our hearts from ones of stone to ones of beating, pulsing flesh, forming us to be little Christs to our neighbors so that like him, we too might leave the thrones we think we deserve and serve in the vocations He's given us to serve Him. When we talk about it that way, faith isn't in ourselves. Faith isn't in our spiritual progress or prowess or something like that. Faith is in Jesus and in His work in us. In the gifts He gives to us. Gifts that sustain us all the way to the end. Guiltless in his forgiveness. This is the first Sunday of the church here, the first Sunday of Advent. Advent means coming, coming of our King. And so now look for the coming of your King, not just his first coming at Christmas, but even now too, in his word and sacraments, where he has promised to meet you. And look forward as well to his coming again and the end when he will rend the heavens and come down and judge the living and the dead. And when he comes, ah, when he comes, we will sing to him just as we sing of his glories today and as we have sung all along, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we will sing those words without fear 
For we have no need to be afraid of the judgment. For he will have sustained us guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now on that day, we can say with Isaiah to our king, Behold, look, we are your people. Your people in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when our king comes to us in the end, guess what? We will be enthroned as kings and queens, not of our own making, but of his making, sons and daughters of the king. And not just for a time, but for eternity. And we will reign with him forever in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. Next sermon. Next sermon uh, for today's uh, listening uh, is from uh, Pastor William Swirla, uh, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights, California. Uh, his gospel text is from the cross-reference to the Mark text that we uh, read from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And uh, he cross-references this with Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Here is the uh, Advent One sermon preached by Pastor William Swirla entitled, Your King Comes to You. In the name of Jesus. Amen. It's the beginning of Advent, the start of the new church year, the time of preparation before Christmas and Epiphany. The word Advent means coming or arrival as the arrival of a king. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is having his Advent. Get ready, here he comes. The season of Advent looks both forward and backward, backward to Jesus' first coming, his first Advent in humility. A virgin mother, a manger crib, a home in Nazareth, no place to lay his head, the suffering servant, a cross, and a tomb. And Advent also looks forward to Jesus' second coming in glory, the shout from heaven, the archangel's trumpet, the clouds, the judgment, the resurrection, the power, and the glory. And today, in this first Sunday of Advent, we do a little bit of both, a kind of back to the future, a look at Jesus appearing as our king in his kingdom. The Old Testament reading from Isaiah looks forward to the latter days when the mountain of the Lord's house will be lifted up high and it will be exalted, when all the nations will flow into it, when people will say to one another, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And that time that Isaiah saw many centuries ago is now, the time of the church, which is God's holy mountain, exalted and uplifted in Christ her head, as all the nations come to the house of God, the God of Jacob, to be baptized into the greater son of Jacob, to be taught the way of salvation in Jesus. And yet there is a notion of not yet going on here, even though it is all fulfilled in Christ, and even though it speaks of the church. Not yet does Jesus judge between the nations. Not yet do people beat their weapons into farm implements. 
Nation still rises up against nation. The Koreans are having at it lately. The art of war remains in practice, even though the rules of engagement seem to have changed a little bit. Now is not the time for peace. Now is the time for war and bloodshed and rumors of war and nation against nation. That's now. The peace is not yet. That great mountain that Isaiah saw, which is heavenly Jerusalem, is still hidden under cover of weakness. A church divided, heresies and sects and corruption, hardly the picture of the highest and most glorious of all mountains. It is not yet. Give it time. Be patient. Give it to the end of time and the last days when the time of faith will end and the time of seeing will begin. And then you too will see with your own eyes what God has been up to all along in, with, and under our history. And the sight will be glorious. But that's still not yet. Behold, your king comes to you. Did you find it strange to hear the Palm Sunday gospel on this first Sunday in Advent? It really does sound a bit strange. It seems out of context. We think of the start of Holy Week, not the start of the season of Advent and the church year. And yet there is a profound point being made in this traditional reading, and this is the traditional reading for the first Sunday of Advent. You see, the last time Jesus the king was seen riding into his city, it was in humility, a beggar king riding atop a borrowed donkey. It happened to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah had said. As he looked forward to see the day of the Messiah king coming to take his throne. And the people that gathered in Jerusalem that day, tossing their coats in the road and tearing branches off the trees to make a royal highway for the king to enter his city, were probably itching for a riot, if not a revolution. The last thing these people expected is what happened at the end of that week when Jesus the king was enthroned on a cross and crucified. Not exactly your idea or my idea of a holy war, is it? But that's exactly what it was. It was the ultimate and the only holy war that mattered. And Jesus the king fought it himself single-handedly. He came to die. He came to lay down his life. He is the king who dies for his subjects. He is the king who rescues them. He is the king who comes to them. You don't come to this king. You don't seek him out. He seeks you out, and he comes to you. And yes, he comes humbly and hiddenly. Not the sort of king you might expect, much less the kind of God you would expect. He comes in the seemingly weak and hidden way of baptismal water of communion, bread and wine, of absolving words, of the office of the ministry. He comes now as he did then humbly and rejectably. You can turn your back on this king and get away with it, at least for a moment. You can mock him, as many still do, and get away with it, at least for a while. You can spit on him and beat him and appear that nothing will happen to you, 
at least for now. But don't mistake that humility for weakness. This king's power is perfected in what we call weakness. His victory comes out of what we call defeat. His holy war is won not by killing his enemies, but by dying at the hands of his enemies to save his enemies. Now contrast that with all the wars going on today. Contrast that with all the kings and tyrants of this world. Contrast that with all the jihads and holy wars waged in the name of God. There is no comparison. There is none like King Jesus, and there is no need to look for another king than him. He's the crucified, risen, and reigning one, and one of him is enough for an entire world. Our problem, our problem with this now and not yet business is that we want it all now. We cannot abide the not yet. We want Christmas now, not Advent. The stores are not decorated for Advent. They are decorated for Christmas because by God, we want our Christmas now. We want glory now instead of suffering. We want heaven now instead of the reality of this life. We want everything by sight and not by faith. And when we don't get it our way, we grow impatient, we become distracted, we doubt. And the world, oh, the world, it looks on us and thinks that we're either quaint or crazy. We who believe in the coming day of glory, much the way the cartoon characters in Charles Schulz's Peanuts mocked poor Linus for his watching and waiting for the coming of the great pumpkin. I hope you still know that Peanuts special. They still play that on TV? I don't watch TV. Yes. I know it's old. It was introduced two years after I was born. That's how old it is. But uh, just in case, I'll give you a little plot line here. A little boy named Linus sits in a pumpkin patch every Halloween waiting for the arrival of the great pumpkin who invariably fails to appear. And yet, no matter how humiliated and how disappointed and how much his friends and his family mock him, Linus is there every year, and he stubbornly vows he will keep his vigil next Halloween for the arrival of the great pumpkin. In our modern world, Advent can seem a lot like that, waiting for the arrival of a Jesus who never seems to show up. We're like Linus, waiting and watching in childlike faith for someone we have never seen. Someone who has promised one day to appear in glory. And it sounds almost silly when I say it, but remember who said it. These are the words of the one who died and who rose from the dead. These are words heard by sane and rational and skeptical people who heard Jesus and who believed it. And every generation after Jesus has sat in his pumpkin patch, waiting for the coming of the Lord in glory. And Advent comes year after year with that same fervent prayer, stir up your power, O Lord, and come. Advent is a time of patient watching and waiting. Our epistle reading gives us the image of early morning, just before the alarm goes off. 
The night is far gone, the day is at hand. You open one eye, it's still dark, but there's a hint of light coming through the window from the horizon. You want to roll over and go back to sleep, but the alarm is insistent. It's time to get up. Get ready. Your king is coming to you. Salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Salvation is nearer now than it was at the start of Advent a year ago. So how are we to live as we watch and wait for this day to appear? Well, it depends what you're waiting for, I suppose. What are you waiting for, darkness or light? Are you waiting for condemnation or salvation? You're baptized. You've been clothed with Christ. You have been declared by God to be children of the light and of the day, not the darkness or the night. Drunkenness, immorality, quarreling, jealousy, those things just don't befit baptized children of the day. You're clothed with Jesus, with his righteousness, with his holiness. Wear it. Wear that garment of baptism. Forget about the desires of your flesh, your sinful self. Don't indulge it. It's dead, and it means death to you. You are about life and light. And so even as the world lives in darkness and revels in the works of darkness, you have been called to be set apart, to live in the day, even as it is still night, because you know that the dawn has come and the day is not far off. That's the spirit of the season of Advent. It's not about shopping. It's not about parties. It's not about baking Christmas cookies, though there will be plenty of all of that. There are Christmas expectations to live up to, after all. But Advent would set our, si set our sights on the horizon, on the rising sun, on the coming king, on the mountain of the Lord about to be shown to be glorious. Behold, your king is coming to you. Get ready. He's coming. Once he came, soon he comes. Once he came by way of a virgin mother, soon he comes with the angels and the archangels and all the company of heaven. Once he came by way of the crib and the cross, soon he comes with the glory of heaven. Once he came riding atop a borrowed donkey, soon he comes with clouds descending. Once he came as a beggar king, soon he comes the king of kings. Once he came to die, soon he comes to raise the dead. Once he came in weakness, soon he comes in power. Once he came to be judged, soon he comes to judge. Once he came to save us, soon he comes to give us his salvation. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. You see what I mean? You know, you, you, you have your pastor preach in depth, exegetically, from a given text. And what do you get? You get Jesus. And you hear the gospel preached to you. You let the pastor's imagination run wild and for him to teach what burbles up from inside of him. 
And what do you lose? You lose Jesus. You lose sound biblical theology. You lose the meaning of the biblical text, and you, as a result, you lose the gospel. Something to consider. All right, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and, you know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. 